Hi, I'm Eric, and welcome to this week's episode of C-Town, where I'll be chatting with Dr. Rob Hulefeld. Dr. Hulefeld is the Chief of Emergency Medicine here at York Hospital and the Director of Walk-In Care. Uh, as you can tell, I did not introduce, nor did you hear from my co-host, Kate. Kate Ford is taking a little family vacation this week and uh, well-deserved. And uh, she's the one who's carried me through these first uh, several episodes, so I'm going to do my best to hold down the fort and uh, carry this on my own. So uh, Rob is a friend, a colleague, and a partner of mine here at York Hospital. I look forward to this exciting discussion where we're going to talk all things emergency medicine and acute care at York Hospital. Hi, I'm Kate Ford. And I'm Eric Fogg. Welcome to C-Town. In each episode, we will discuss all things York Hospital, past, present, and future, as well as current medical topics to help us navigate that sometimes confusing world of healthcare. But before we get to that interview, let's get some hospital updates. As I've been mentioning throughout our other episodes, we want to plug our 5K fun run for everyone uh, here at York Hospital on June 6th. Registration is open uh, and online. Visit yorkhospital.com. If you haven't run this event, it's a great, great fundraiser for the hospital. Typically attracts 400 plus runners every year. Just by registering, you get a free t-shirt. And if you finish either walking or running, you get a medal. So everyone is encouraged to participate. Uh, the other news that's hot right now, and as of the recording date of this, it is March the 10th here, uh, and uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 is all the discussion, uh, both in the media and preparedness here at York Hospital and the, um, and the region. As of yesterday, test kits uh, are available here in the state of Maine. They no longer need to be sent to the federal CDC in Atlanta. So uh, we have Yet, again, as of March 10th, to have any cases here in Maine, uh, that will just be a matter of days probably. And when this airs uh, in late March, uh, this probably will look and seem a lot different uh, with more cases. So more to come. Uh, As with the flu, uh, we encourage all of our listeners to practice uh, good hygiene uh, to prevent uh, and diminish the spread of respiratory illness. That includes good hand hygiene, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth, use good cough and sneeze etiquette, clean, disinfect, uh, and um, be careful of frequently touched objects and surfaces, avoid close contact with others who are sick, following the six-foot rule, and limit contact uh, with all others who are ill. So those are our hospital updates. Let's get to our interview. So let me introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Rob Hulefeld. Rob uh, and I have worked together here at York Hospital uh, very closely for the last five-plus years, but I've known Rob since he was a resident uh, in his training in emergency medicine. Rob is an East Coaster like myself. He was born and raised in the North Shore of Massachusetts, but Rob did go out west uh, to do his undergrad at Pomona College in Claremont, California, where he studied anthropology, uh, which was the perfect segue uh, to medical school, where he Obviously. attended where he attended back here in Boston at Tufts University School of Medicine. Uh, he then came up to Maine to Maine Medical Center to do his emergency medicine residency training program, where, again, I met him for the first time. And he's been here at York Hospital since 2009 and has served as the chief of the ED. Let me get this right, Rob. Two, 
2014? 2013. 2013. Okay, great. So Rob, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I know that you are a huge consumer of podcasts and uh, (laughs) you're a big fan of these. And I know you've been a fan since we started this project here at York Hospital. Big supporter. Big supporter. So I know you've listened to every episode, so I appreciate you taking the time to... uh, Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you bet. You bet. So uh, our goal here today is to cover uh, a little bit of ground, uh, particularly focusing on emergency medicine services here at York Hospital, uh, including our network of walk-ins and our urgent care facility uh, up in Wells. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that. But I think to set the stage, and I'm going to need your help with this, um, I think for our listeners, it would be great to talk a little bit about the history of emergency medicine here in the United States. Um, And uh, as an emergency medicine board certified doc, you probably are are, um, know a little bit more about this, but I'm going to do my best. So um, this whole notion of it calling it an ER, uh, I think dates back to the early 40s and 50s when hospitals uh, designated like a room Mm -hmm. in a hospital to care for unscheduled patients who are having some sort of acute problem or illness and whatnot. And they would staff it with typically a nurse and and it was called an ER or an emergency room because it literally was physically one room. And back in the 40s and 50s and probably into the early 60s, it was staffed with whoever, right, was available at the hospital. That could mean an internist, it could mean a family practice doc, it could mean an ophthalmologist or a dermatologist or whatever, right? Yep. Uh, And then it was quickly appreciated that there is a certain um, uh, knowledge base, right, that goes um, uh, that goes towards caring for patients with heart attacks, <clears throat> strokes, trauma, and injuries. And into the 60s, there was a group of physicians, I believe it was in Virginia and maybe even Michigan as well, who started to come together to think about this and putting curriculum together. Uh, by the early 70s, I think we had established our first emergency mes- uh, medicine residency program, I think at the University of Cincinnati Correct. was the first. And then yep. uh, I think by 1972, emergency medicine was recognized as a, as a true discipline. So we're talking Rob about a discipline that's really less than 50 years old. Correct. Right? Yep. Uh, and then by the 1980s, there was subspecialties in emergency medicine like toxicology, I think trauma medicine, critical care, pediatric emergency medicine, and that certainly has blossomed. To me, Rob, when I went to graduate school in the mid-90s, I think that's when um, uh, Shows like ER were becoming popular, and uh, the George Clooney's of the world were playing these cool ER docs, right, that people could identify with and whatnot. Um, But the point is, uh, relatively new discipline, uh, certainly a specialty that requires a certain skill set to manage patients, and these aren't emergency rooms anymore, right? They're departments that are filled with highly trained physicians, nurses, advanced practice providers, a whole coordinated team to manage. How did I do on that? You did great. I would say, uh, first, for those who have interest in the history of emergency medicine, the American College of Emergency Physicians within the past year and a half to two years has published somewhat of an anthology on some of the uh, uh, grandfathers, because it was initially extremely male-dominated emergency medicine of emergency care. Um, and some of that progression that you discuss, where ambulances were in fact hearses. So you had funeral homes who would send out a hearse to, uh, when they responded to a call from the local police or fire department, to respond to, to the scene to transport patients to the hospitals. You're absolutely correct that these were emergency rooms. And you're absolutely correct that they were often staffed by people with no formal training in emergency medicine. In fact, 
um, the great Larry Petrovich, who is known to this organization and uh, this community in particular, uh, told me uh, a couple of years ago of when he first arrived to this community as uh, the first cardiologist in the seacoast that he took rotating emergency department call here. And it was not a true department then. Uh, and he, uh, uh, and the way that only Larry Cannon is very gentle, patrician way told me about his, uh, one particular call evening, which I cannot uh, describe, uh, on this uh, show about, uh, uh, responding to the emergency department, uh, late on a new year's Eve, uh, coming straight from a party to attend to an acute GYN case. So you had a, a cardiologist, uh, responding from a party to a manage a acute gynecologic case. So amazing. Those days are long gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's probably was the 80s we're talking, right? Late 70s? Uh, was it was actually, no, Larry, it's been here for a long time. Yep. Larry, no offense, but <laughs> <laughs> it's both a compliment and uh, implicit critique. Uh, no, I'm just teasing. Uh, he's been here since the, I would say, the mid-70s, I think, Larry arrived here. So I worked with Fred Thaler pretty closely um, several years ago, and he would share his rotate As a family practice doc who'd been in this community, right, since the 70s, late 70s, yep. early 80s, that Dr. Graziano, uh, you know, Dr. Thaler and others, would, would they were on a rotating schedule uh, at the yep. time. They were t- caring for their patients in their practice, you know, maybe 9 to 5, and then at 5 o'clock would head over and cover their overnight shift uh, exactly. in, the, in the ED. Yep. Uh, and we have uh, uh, several nurses still with this organization that date back to some oh. of those early uh, early years in the emergency room. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I would be remiss not to give a, uh, a posthumous shout out to my late father, who was, uh, I'm somewhat of a rare breed and that I'm a second generation emergency physician. It was pioneers like my father who took a job after a rotating internship uh, in 1969 to 1970. And then uh, was uh, randomly recruited to a hospital in Lynn, Massachusetts to come staff their new emergency department, which was uh, only a handful of rooms. So, and, and I've known, you've talked with me about your dad before, and, and I, I suspect that that was probably one of the biggest drivers of you going into emergency medicine. But oh, curious, when you were in medical school, was it always emergency medicine? No, or? never. Uh, I shouldn't say never, but... Uh, um, I was lucky enough to have interest and be good at a few different kinds of specialties. So I think like a lot of medical students, as I worked through medical school and was exposed to different um, specialties, I, I would fluctuate from rotation to rotation, convinced that I was going to be a great psychiatrist or a great cardiologist or maybe even an internist. Um, but what we've seen in the evolution of emergency medicine and medicine in general um, over the past 50 years is... Um, all of the, what I think, cool parts of medicine have migrated to the emergency department. So there was a time, even not very long ago, where a patient could come to the hospital, um, you could perform some initial screening testing, um, and you could admit that patient to the hospital in order to arrive at the diagnosis. Now it is a rarity that I admit a patient to a hospital in whom I don't have one, two, or even three working diagnoses. And the point of admitting to the hospital is for ongoing care of those diagnoses that I've made. So in other words, all the diagnostics that used to happen either on an outpatient basis or during the course of a patient's hospitalization have been front-loaded to the emergency department. So all the um, uh, all the sort of uh, workups and um, parts of the that capture the public imagination about arriving at a diagnosis or being uh, like 
house MD or whatever else, almost a lot of that happens in the emergency department that didn't used to. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about your training at Maine Med in a minute. But when I was a, a PA student in Atlanta, Georgia, I did my emergency medicine rotation at Grady Hospital in, in downtown Atlanta. And and for those listeners who uh, never been to Atlanta, uh, it is described as the Cook County of Atlanta. It is the uh, city hospital. It's also the residency program for the Emory uh, Emergency Medicine Program. And talk about room versus department. This um, this emergency department saw three to four hundred patients per day. Uh, it was divided at the time. It's been years since I've been in there. This was uh, 1993, 94, uh, into color zones. So red was trauma. So if you went to the red zone trauma, you went to the blue zone. That was medicine. So your belly pain, chest pain, that sort of thing. Um, the green zone was their fast track, right, where the average wait time was 13 hours yeah. to be seen, right, in the city hospital. So yep. you could watch uh, the movie Titanic three times before being seen <laughs> in the uh, in the fast track. So uh, the yellow zone was any patient with a positive HIV diagnosis, regardless of the complaint, went to the yellow zone. And then my favorite zone, Rob, was what was called asthma and detention. So if you were having an asthma exacerbation and short of breath, it, they put you in the same area where they had all the folks coming from the local prisons shackled to the uh, stretcher. So if you were having asthma exacerbation, that often made it worse being next to a guy yep. shackled to it. So it was an yeah. interesting place to uh, yeah. to train. And I saw, your teeth. I, I saw a lot of a lot of amazing things there. But uh, you and I, you did your training there. I certainly worked there. Uh, tell me about your residency program and your training in emergency medicine. What is that structured like and how is that set up? Because there, there are standards that are consistent, whether you're at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia versus Maine Medical Center in Portland. Yep. So four years of medical school after four years of college, four years of medical school, and then emergency medicine residencies are either three-year programs or four-year programs. Maine Med is a three-year program. During your first year, you're exposed to all your sort of core rotations, so internal medicine, working up on the medical floors, general surgery, participating in scrubbing in the OR, learning basic surgical techniques, uh, ICU rotations, pediatric rotations, OB rotations. And then you um, that's your intern year where you, um, they had just passed uh, rules in this country when I was an intern that you could not work more than 30 hours consecutively, and um, they mandated... A, trying to remember how frequently you could be on call. So there was only one or two rotations where you would have every other night be on call and you could only work a maximum of 30 hours. Uh, the, those, and there were physicians then who were lamenting the good old days of when you were just on call all the time. And uh, you know the reason they called them residents is because you physically lived at the hospital. Um, it has since migrated to a, a more humane and sustainable uh, training program, but there are still the naysayers saying you're not getting your um, adequate exposure to, to uh, various types of illnesses and patient presentations. So as you uh, as you sort of move through residency, you get you accept ever more patient responsibility until you're running teams, you're managing patients primarily, and your attending physician moves from co-managing to being more of a consultant role. Mm -hmm. So, and then um, I did my chief residency there too. So you, during the, my last year at Maine Med, you take on some administrative responsibilities where um, the residents in the program, both in your own class and the classes below you, uh, look to you for um, some administrative tasks, whether it's scheduling, whether it's HR related things or uh, that kind of stuff. And remind me, I should know this, I think Maine Med started its formal physician emergency medicine residency program 
in the 90s, was it? Late 90s? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, Tony Bach, who is our longest serving uh, ED physician uh, at York Hospital currently, was the second class. And so. He's been here for at least 17 or 18 years now. Yep. So yep. thank you, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, let's talk a little bit about our neat little emergency department here at York Hospital. I've worked in several emergency departments from, I told you where I trained, I worked my first job was in a rural uh, community in Jackson, Georgia, which sat in Butts County, Georgia, which was halfway between Atlanta and Macon. I shared in my last podcast that one of the most eye-opening things to me was um, the difference between a diabetic tray and a non-diabetic tray at, at Sylvan Grove Hospital in Jackson, Georgia, when I was there in 1996, was sweet tea versus unsweet tea. Everything else was the same on the tray. That's my favorite story. <laughs> Love that. At the time, physicians were still smoking in the nurses' uh, station, and, and it was really a kind of a throwback. Patients were outside on the stoop smoking with the oxygen cannulas. Nice. You know, inches from the nice. from the cigarette. So uh, again, another great place to cut my teeth and saw a lot of great things. But so I've worked in several um, uh, community hospitals, uh, rural hospitals, academic teaching centers, tertiary centers, and then there's kind of your hospital ED. And when you walk into not only this hospital, but when you walk in this emergency department, there's a different kind oh, of yeah. feel. Tell tell me about your impression when you first came to to your hospital in the emergency room. So first, when I finished uh, residency in 2008, uh, this was the plum job for emergency medicine in the state of Maine. This was the place where you kind of sent in your CV and hoped that uh, when uh, a spot opened up that they would punch your ticket and call you down at least for an interview. Um, I took a job uh, straight out of residency at Central Maine Medical Center, which is a a great trauma center with a bunch of um, associated rural critical access hospitals, which made for great post-residency uh, emergency medicine training. Um, but I was fortunate enough uh, when uh, one of the docs that was working here at the time went halftime uh, that uh, I got a call from the then chief, Tony Bach, who I mentioned earlier, uh, to come interview. And I was so anxious to get my foot in the door that I, uh, despite having a young, growing family, I uh, I took a halftime job and uh, just made up the difference uh, by moonlighting elsewhere. Um, I would say the same things that attracted me then apply today. It is a little gem of a community hospital. It's more heavily resourced than most community hospitals. It tends to attract similarly-minded care providers, people who love patient care. Um, And this is an extraordinary environment to practice emergency medicine because there's a great penetrance of primary care. You still get plenty of advanced disease presentations to keep you interested. Um, And your patients are... uh, the nicest clientele that I have encountered in emergency medicine, and I've been working in ER since I was 18. So so on that point, you and I do a lot of co-recruiting here together, particularly for our walk-in service line, and I think probably in the last five years, you and I have interviewed and recruited, I don't know, 25, 30 Advanced that does program. not mean the program's not successful. <laughs> no, we're just, we've gotten bigger. We've gotten yeah, bigger. We've, grown. we've gotten bigger. But one of my favorite parts, we do it as a team, and I think uh, it really works out well, and, and folks, I think, appreciate our style of recruitment. But one of my favorite parts, and I've heard this story 25 or 30 times, and I enjoy it every time, is the story of when you, you know, when you recruit your ER docs, you kind of share this story about when, when you started working here. So, oh, so yeah. please, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, uh, I was uh, coming off an evening shift uh, in uh, Lewiston, which is, uh, you know, a, a bit of a grittier level two trauma center, and uh, 
I came down here for my first shift and it was an elderly gentleman was one of the first patients I was taking care of and he was having an acute exacerbation of congestive heart failure. It was working to breathe, but we front loaded him with some medications, put him on a, a BiPAP face mask and quickly got him stabilized enough that we could actually get the mask on, put him on, get the mask off, uh, get him on oxygen by nasal cannula. And he and I could have more um, fluid conversations back and forth. And so I started going over all his test results and uh, telling him what the plan of care was. I'd be admitted to the hospital. I'd already spoken to his cardiologist. I'd spoken to his primary care doc. And it was pretty clear after a couple of minutes that he wasn't really listening to me anymore. And so I uh, although a young doc at the time was still able to recognize that he had stopped listening and just kind of checked in with him and said, you know, is there something that, uh, something you want me to say? He said, well, yeah, my family's coming up. And, uh, and I interrupted him and said, well, I'd be, I'd be happy to go over all this information with them too. And he said, well, yeah, I expect you to do that, but they're going to be hungry when they get here. And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, he said, yeah. So I was thinking we could, you know, order him, uh, some, some lunch. And I was like, I don't, uh, and I was I was honestly befuddled and uh, taken aback because I just the juxtaposition uh, coming off an evening shift where I'd had uh, you know police involvement in multiple cases near altercations with patients a, a much more stereotypical emergency medicine environment and so I said I sir I don't really know anything about that and he continued talking and just said well I was thinking we should order them lobster rolls and so I just tried to like gracefully duck out I went back into the nurse's station and I said this guy is really nice but I don't know if he's still the like not getting enough oxygen because he just asked me to order lobster rolls for his family who are <laughs> on the way and uh and the ER nurses turned to me and said, oh, yeah, he told us too. We already ordered them. Don't worry. They'll be here when they get here. And I just was blown away. And I said, I think I said something like, well, if you could let me know what Chardonnay we're serving today, I would appreciate knowing that. Amazing. So, yeah. Amazing. I it love was, it. Uh, it was extraordinary. It's my favorite story. Yeah. Um, so a, a good example of, of kind of the culture we practice in and uh, the, the great medicine we deliver. But there are some things that I think are unique to point out to uh, our listeners about the ED here. You had mentioned tertiary care centers and, you know, things that um, – we have great resources here, but talk a little bit about um, our telestroke program, sure. our telepsych program, those type of using technology and stuff to to deliver even better care. Yep. So first, I would just say this hospital was the first in the area decades ago to recognize the value of um, specific training in emergency medicine. So it was the first hospital in the area to have board certified uh, emergency physicians staffing its department. It's continued that legacy um, uh, while being a a, a smaller community emergency department it continues to attract um, extraordinarily talented energetic enthusiastic emergency medicine providers both on the physician side and on the physician assistant side of things our job at a hospital of this size although we are better resourced than any hospital of this size that i know is to recognize which patients we can manage at our own facility and which patients we need to initiate care on and then transfer to a higher level of care, whether that's tertiary care or quaternary care, whatever the case may be. We recognize that um, although we have extraordinary resources here at York Hospital, whether it's a cath lab with primary um, cardiac intervention, 
um, whether it's interventional radiology or a slew of uh, specialist consultants, we recognize that there are some patients who need to be at higher levels of care, whether it's for trauma care, advanced neurologic care. Those are our, actually our two most common. In those circumstances, we tend to have clinical partnerships. So, for example, our longest-serving um, telehealth connection is with MGH in their acute stroke program. And this is basically what it looks like for the patient is when we have a patient who arrives either by private vehicle or hopefully by ambulance people, uh, when they arrive with acute stroke-like symptoms, we are able to um, quickly mobilize uh, consultants at Mass General Hospital uh, to determine whether or not these patients require clot-busting medication or whether they actually require um, helicopter or ground transport uh, for urgent catheter-based interventions. We get the benefit of living and working in this extraordinary community and the community emergency department, but also having access to cutting edge technology to offer our patients the latest standard of care. So I, um, I get to see it firsthand working with you very closely. Um, but for our listeners, can you describe what a day in the life is like for an ER doc at York Hospital? You know, what a typical shift looks and feels like? I would picture uh, being fed grapes and being fed. No, <laughs> just it is uh, it's uh, emergency medicine. So it's you arrive to your shift and um, you don't know what you're going to do that day, but you know that you have an extraordinary nursing and support staff to help you manage whatever walks through or drives into your ambulance bay. So it can be anything from seeing uh, someone uh, with uh, multiple trauma and traumatic injuries from a fall or car accident. We don't have a lot of penetrating trauma in the state of Maine, which makes it a great place to live. Um, uh, so anything from major traumatic injuries to severe life-threatening illnesses, sepsis, uh, to a barrage of neurologic or um, cardiogenic processes. So it can be any age presenting at any time with virtually anything. We uh, like to say that we can manage, uh, that we know a lot, uh, we know uh, just enough about a lot of diseases and we can manage patients with any problem for at least the first 15 to 30 minutes and then we know when to call in help. Yeah. So as part of that, and, and what brought you and I together formally uh, was several years ago, we envisioned uh, and partnered on this project where we took some of our pre-existing walk-ins that existed in the York Hospital system, and we put them under the umbrella of the emergency department and formalized a little bit of the staffing and the structure and the protocols. And we've, over the last five years, we've grown that to what was two or three walk-ins. Uh, Berwick, I think, was one of the originals. Kittery came on board. Wells had always kind of had this hybrid, freestanding ED-type program mm -hmm. that, that went back and forth a little bit over the few years to now adding Sanford, Kennebunk, and, and the York walk-in. And what that's done is provided, I think, a, uh, a, uh, a service line for patients with non-emergent acute care issues from sprains and strains and sore throats and earaches and that sort of thing, and has really then uh, allowed the resources uh, in the ED to manage those patients who should most appropriately be there. Talk to me a little bit about uh, that uh, project that we started a few years ago. Well, first, I can remember uh, you uh, swinging by the ED and coming into my office one day and uh, early after I had taken over the chief role in 2013 and um, already 
presenting this vision to me, and I think I used language that I cannot use here and asked you to come back in a year. I remember. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I give you uh, all the credit for recognizing uh, where the sort of um, what people variously dub um, walking care, retail care, where that trend was going in acute care, uh, because we see that um, patients have both a financial and personal interest in seeking lower acuity care where they don't feel like they have something wrong with them that belongs in the emergency department, but historically have not always had the off hours or weekend access to their primary care provider or pediatrician or whatever. So um, I am quite proud of what we have built together and again, give you the lion's share of the credit, Eric. Uh, but an integrated service line that last year saw more than 70,000 patient visits that's able to, um, I can remember one case in particular two years ago where a patient presented to a walk-in feeling short of breath, hadn't seen a primary care doctor in a year and a half or so. I got a call from that walk-in provider as the medical director asking about lab work. We made the somewhat unusual decision to, yes, send lab work that day, um, but also refer them over to, the, um, to uh, get seen in the urgent care. A patient went from that initial intake uh, at the walk-in center uh, at, uh, say, 9.30 in the morning and ended the day having rapid induction chemotherapy at Mass General Hospital, having progressed through the walk-in to the emergency department to seeing an oncologist to having uh, a dozen diagnostic tests to recognizing that our local oncology service was recommending uh, that they needed emergent induction chemotherapy. I mean, you talk about the potential of a service line to inbound a patient and to move them rapidly through our system and to our clinical affiliate down in Boston. That was an extraordinary case for me. On a much more routine basis, we take patients uh, presenting, again, with any number of complaints. And as you know, about five to six of those patients end up being referred on a daily basis to the emergency department, either here or at our uh, mixed facility in Wells. But the vast majority of patients are able to be cared for on site uh, quickly. Uh, you know, you, you talk about a massive, uh, well, before we started, you were talking about massive wait times down at Emory and um, the average order provider time at any of our facilities is, is just extraordinary. So I think we offer a great product. Yeah, I, I, like you, am very proud and, and certainly couldn't have done it without you and your support. You were hugely instrumental in not only getting this going, but sustaining it and growing it. And I think it's worth mentioning that we, you and I, our service line doesn't practice in a bubble. We are so integrated with oh, yeah. our primary care teams. So patients who are part of your hospital that um, come in for care, that information can be disseminated back to their primary care docs. So when they follow up, it's all kind of um, bundled up and packaged nicely here when you come to York Hospital. And we try to be the anti-retail uh, from that standpoint. Yeah, I, I think we offer something different than some of your um, for-profit chains that have since moved into uh, not into our communities directly, but certainly into the surrounding areas uh, and not to at all begrudge the care that's provided at those facilities, but it's not York Hospital branded. That's right. It certainly feels different when you come here for care. Right. So I, I know you'll find this stunning to believe, but we're almost out of time. And wow. uh, it went by quickly. But one last question I'll leave you with is, um, given your experience and, and given kind of uh, your historical knowledge and whatnot, where do you see the future of emergency medicine at York Hospital? Oh, a strong, bright future. I think um, whatever the, well, let me back up and say, Projecting any trajectories in medicine right now is a very difficult thing. Healthcare in general, um, 
you know, when I arrived at York Hospital, uh, there were uh, many different iterations of uh, community emergency medicine. Those look very different now. The future at York Hospital continues to be extraordinarily bright, and um, you will see it play, I think, an ever-increasing pivotal role in whatever healthcare comes to look like in the next five to ten years. What a great way to end this interview, and I can't thank you enough for not only being my partner, but for joining me on this podcast. Thank um, you. I joked Kicking a little. and screaming. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, thanks again, Rob. I appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. So typically at this time in the podcast, I have a little wrap-up with my co-host, Kate. We kind of go back and forth about what we learned and, and what we enjoyed about the podcast. But since I'm flying solo, I'll share with you that I really looked forward to this discussion with Rob. Uh, Rob is, a, like I said, a personal friend and a partner. We work very closely together. But uh, uh, it was a great summary and discussion about emergency services here at York Hospital. A little bit of the history, a little bit of the background a little bit about the current state um, with our networked walk-ins and emergency department and Rob's perspective on the bright future. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, if you did, certainly, um, if you haven't already subscribed to our, to our podcast, um, uh, that is going to be the end of this week's episode on C-Town. Please follow us on Instagram at C-Town Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of SeaTown. We hope you found it of interest and would love to hear from you about topics you'd like to learn more about. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find episodes by clicking SeaTown button on the homepage of yorkhospital.com. By listening to this podcast, you're agreeing not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own provider for any medical issues that you may be having. Seatown is a production of Darcy Creative in collaboration with York Hospital. Copyright 2020.